right, so welcome to the Nurses in the No Show. I'm your co-host, Kristen, and this is... The other co-host, Hannah. And we would like to welcome you to the... Nurses, Nurses in, in the, the No Show! show. As promised, here is Season 2, Episode 7, Part B, with Dr. Jason Bolt, the CRNA. I had no idea that even existed, and I think that's absolutely amazing that you have found a niche, but also something that is very useful for prospective students and future CRNAs. And I think that's really important because you're able to give back to like the profession that you truly enjoy. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, it is. It's an amazing thing. I, I didn't... I started YouTube just doing it for fun years ago, and I had no idea that it would kind of morph and transform into what it's become, but I'm so happy it has. It's really rewarding. It's a wonderful way to give back. Yeah, and it connects me with people like you guys where I can come on and just do a podcast talking to other nurses and, and who empower other nurses and help the field grow. And, you know, I, I like everybody, not just CRNAs and CRNA students and ICU nurses. I like all nurses and, and other, you know, healthcare professionals too. So this is yeah, ideal. Us too. Yeah. Us too, except ER nurses. Oh, you don't like yeah, ER nurses? I'm just no, kidding. It was playing into a stereotype. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there's, totally all, there's always a little beef between the ER and the ICU. I yeah, for sure. And CRNA. It. Lately, I got all the beef between the CRNAs and ICU. Oh, you've got uh, beef between the ICU and the CRNAs? Uh-oh. I've only had good interactions with the ICU. Here lately, because of COVID, the last month or so. It's a different it's a different world back there in the OR, though. Like, it is. It, it, it yeah. really is. I don't know. I, I see... I see both sides of it. So I'm like, okay. I mean, I've had to go in and recover patients in the OR because back then, like before COVID, when they were a contact patient, you recovered them in the OR. Like they didn't leave the suite. So it's just you mm -hmm. and the CRNA or anesthesia if it's after hours. I see both sides right. of it. So Okay. So I know CRNA school was super tough for you, Jason. And well, for everyone, not just you. I'm not, I'm not calling you like dub or anything, but, <laughs> <laughs> but like, it's probably like a blur and a blackout. Um, so let's just actually skip over that a little bit and let's talk a little bit about life as a CRNA. What is one of your favorite parts of your job? And I guess to go off of that, what's one of your least favorite parts of your job as well? All right. So the one of my favorite parts of my job is being able to go into a room, like say I was on call the other night and I was covering OB and I went into a room and, you know, 9, 10 PM, I have a mother who is five centimeters dilated. She is in pretty, pretty significant pain and discomfort. It's her first baby. She is you know, wanting something to relieve this pain. The husband is looking distraught. The nurse, the labor and delivery nurse is kind of distraught. And, uh, you know, everyone's been trying multiple different things, fentanyl, other methods, bouncing on a ball and things like that. And we've reached that point where nothing's really helping. And they look at me and they're like, you are the savior of the moment. You're going to be able to come Aww. in here and you are going to, you know, you're, uh, they're somewhat terrified of me. You know, you kind of, it's a weird duality of, of an approach here. They're terrified of you and what you're about to do, but they also mm -hmm. want you in here 10 minutes ago. Like they, they are desperate for you to come on in. So I get to come in, I get to talk to them in a moment of their, you know, need when they're in a lot of pain and discomfort and be able to say, Hey, I'm about to do something for you. That's going to change this for you. And you're going to be mm -hmm. a lot more comfortable, hopefully after this. 
And that's what I do. And then, you know, I perform a procedure. I give an epidural and place an epidural in a catheter and then, you know, dose through that. And then within 10 minutes, I come back to check on her and I realize she's comfortably napping and the husband's, you know, trying to whisper not, not to disturb her. And he says, you know, she hasn't slept in like a day and a half. You know, she's Aww. just so exhausted. She's so tired. She's been in so much pain. And now she's able to rest and go through the rest of her labor in a somewhat more comfortable fashion. And so that element of my job, I'm able to walk away from that and know, just like pulling back to what I said earlier about wanting to help people earlier in my life as a young kid, I knew that's what I wanted to do. I'm able to walk out of that room and know that I improved that mother's time for that, you know, period. And I'm able to do that over and over every day with my job. And the flip side of that is sadly in anesthesia, we get used to always being the feel-good guy who gets to leave things in a good position. Sometimes Mm -hmm. that doesn't always happen. You know, life is not like a textbook. Sometimes patients don't read the textbook and don't act the way that they're supposed to act. Sometimes the drugs do not act on them the way that they normally should. And things are unpredictable. Anesthesia can be unpredictable. Anesthesia is oftentimes called an art and a science. And so, Mm -hmm. and it truly is. So one plus one can sometimes be equal six for some reason, and it doesn't make sense. And that unpredictability of it in anesthesia can be difficult and stressful. And sometimes you're not the, you know, the person that the patient loves the most. Sometimes they're mad at you because you're giving them something and it's not helping, or maybe their heart condition or some other physiological condition puts them in a place where they're not able to receive as much as they would like to have. And, uh, and so sometimes things are just harder in that sense. And so I would say that's probably my least favorite aspect of my job. Yeah, that's, that's, no one likes to disappoint anyone. It's always, it's always tough. Right. Do you have like a favorite kind of case? I know you mentioned like epidurals, but, um, do you have a favorite kind of case that you like to do? I like a varied practice and it's something a lot of people will ask me, do you get bored in anesthesia? Because the people from the outsider who are looking at anesthesia, they may think, well, the patient's asleep. You know, you, your job for 10 minutes, they're awake and you're doing a lot of things. It's kind of high activity level. And then for, you know, maybe two or three hours throughout the actual surgical case or whatever you're doing they're probably not awake. They're maybe intubated and paralyzed and fully unconscious and you're not doing, you're, you're just maintaining that anesthetic. So people will say, well, don't you get bored during that time period? Well, what I like about what I do is that I can do lots of different types of cases and different types of anesthesia so that I might do a day where I do 10 or 15 really fast turnover cases, like maybe a GI room where you're going to do a lot of colonoscopies and EGDs, and you might do 15 or 20 of those cases back to back to back. You meet lots of people. You're very fast moving. There's very little downtime. Uh, There's lots of troubleshooting different things, and uh, you're not really intubating patients typically on those cases. Your anesthetics are going to be what's considered MAC uh, type cases, monitored anesthesia care type cases. Um, so those are those type of days. And then the next day I could be doing a robotic surgery day where we're doing major invasive surgery that are long drawn out cases. Maybe it's six or eight hours long. I'm putting in arterial lines into the patients. They're very sick. I need, I'm putting on norepi infusions and phenylephrine infusions and, um, you know, 
dealing with a lot of different hemodynamics that are hard to control and positioning challenges. And it's really engaging a lot of my critical thinking and my assessments and management. Maybe they're a difficult airway. We're intubating and we're using a lot of different uh, advanced techniques. So on that day, it's a very different approach. So I like that about anesthesia. There's not one certain case I like the most or, uh, and there's not really one certain case that I absolutely hate. Um, there are certain ones that I don't love, but I won't, I won't sully their names, but I do, uh, I do like the flexibility and how quickly your day can change from day to day in anesthesia. I think for, I would be terrified to do epidurals. That's just me. Like, I don't know why, like just messing with someone's spine, it freaks me out. I had a student, it's so funny you said that. I had a, uh, it was on Instagram. Someone DM'd me uh, when I was on call the other day and I had said on my stories that I was on call doing, you know, epidurals. They said, uh, can I become a CRNA, but just guarantee that I never have to do an epidural? <laughs> and I just <laughs> I was like, and I said, why? And they were like, well, I'm just really scared of that. And I was like, well, trust me, nobody comes into training and is like, I have no problem sticking a a fairly <laughs> decently sized needle in someone's back towards their epidural space on the outside of the yeah. spine area and have no problem with that. You know, that there's definitely a respect and a knowledge you need to have for that procedure before you do it. But CRNA school, uh, it's a long, lengthy, difficult process. And through that process, they will break you out of your comfort zone and they will push you to places yeah. that you didn't think you could do or would like doing. And you will learn that you can do it half asleep almost uh, at two in the morning at, after yeah. a while and you're competent and, and, you know, provide high quality anesthetic. I mean, I'm not saying that I wouldn't do it. I would do it. I just... <laughs> It, not I, feel I comfortable be, with it at first. <laughs> yeah, that would be like my breaking. Like that would be the tough one for me. I, I mean, can, you can always go work no for problem. a surgical center and not have to deal with that. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, unless I mean, it's like you... an OB. Like <laughs> yeah, <no>. you'll, you'll <laughs> have to do it as center. a student. Yeah, the problem is you will have to do it many times to graduate school. So by the time yeah. you would have graduated, you would have done it enough times that you will have broken Still past well. the like extreme right. fear of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm, no. it's, I don't know. That's just <laughs> if like not, my thing, then you're not cut out for it. <laughs> yeah. But then again, like when I was in nursing school or before nursing school, I never thought that I could deal with like half the stuff that we deal with, like the bodily fluids that we deal with on a day to day. And I'm like, eh, whatever. Definitely. Yeah. I, I mean, I remember being 18, 19, being terrified of blood. And I used to actually pass out when my blood was strong. Oh back at that gosh. time, I was that guy that passed out. They'd have to get orange juice for and stuff. And, uh, oh, and Lord. look at what, here I am now. So You know, there's still people like back. that though, oh, yeah. like in medicine, yeah. there's still people that like will pass out at the sight of their own blood, but like any, someone else's, they're fine. Yep. I still don't like having my blood drawn. I don't pass oh, out. I don't like me. it though. Yeah. So I'm like about it. to tell on my my dad big time. So he's a surgeon. I mean, like he cuts people for a living, right? My mom had a C-section right. with the twins and my dad almost passed out in the OR because <laughs> he saw <laughs> her. It's a true yeah. it's a true story like and that's something my mom never lets him live down. <laughs> that's so funny. He cuts um, people all day and he's scared right. of Like but Yeah, it's something about it when it's so personal. 
But now, now that they're like personal. older in their age, um, he'll take like little skin, like little skin things off here and there. So he's okay doing it. I'm like, well, I'm happy you've gotten a lot better since then. Yes. Jeez. And it's funny you mentioned that because like when we're doing epidurals, we always make the father stay seated because mm-hmm. even if it is like a big butch, you know, strong dude with a bunch of tattoos and maybe even works in healthcare <laughs> or something. We're going to make you have a seat and stay yep. seated while you're holding your wife's hand up there because there have been instances where if the fathers, they catch a glimpse of the needle or something <laughs> that you're doing and they freak out and they pass out and they've hit the floor. And now suddenly you have two patients you're taking care of. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, we always make them sit down. And a lot of times they're like, I'm fine. I'm tough. I've got no problems. I needles don't bother right. me. I'm like, no, sir, you'll need to have a seat, please. (laughs) If you want your wife to have an epidural, you will sit down right now. I'm sure you don't like that, but that that would be me. (laughs) They usually understand. Okay. So what about like personality traits best and worst suited for being a CRNA? Oh, this is a good one. This is a good one. Personality traits. I would say ambitious, um, driven. Oh, for sure. I would say hardworking, tenacious, um, not afraid of hard work and um, autonomy. I I mean, autonomy. Yes, people who like autonomy, people who like to be kind of a free thinker and kind of be on their own as like a free agent. If you are always wanting to work in a team where there's like multiple people telling you what to do or what they think, and and you're kind of the person who relies on a lot of feedback all the time, that's not really good for anesthesia because in that <laughs> OR room, you're literally the only you. anesthesia provider in that OR room. So if you don't know exactly what you want to do and you are not good, good at making decisions and uh, on in a rapid moment like in two seconds making a, a, a decision that might be life or death and then enacting that decision you don't want to go into this kind of career field because you'll do that every day all the time you will make quick decisions that could mean life or death for that patient and so you need to be the kind of person who's good at that yep absolutely do you okay it, this is actually a question that i have that i don't know the answer to um as far as scope of practice, what's the difference between scope of practice for a CRNA versus a an anesthesiologist MD? MD. Uh, that's a great question. So it's the exact same scope of practice. Um, physician, anesthesiologist, and CRNAs can practice the exact same way and the same skills in anesthesia. So there's there's um, CRNA only groups all across the United States and all 50 states where the entire group that provides anesthesia yeah. is just all CRNAs. See, I learned something new today. I did not know that. Thank you. Oh, really? I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, so you're an independently licensed anesthesia provider as a CRNA. That's part of why the schooling is so difficult because you, you have to go from being an ICU nurse to being a fully capable independent anesthesia provider in three years. And so it's very difficult. Um, but it's necessary because it's a lot of responsibility and you should be capable of providing everything on your own by the time you graduate. And then you can choose to work in a team with physician anesthesiologists. And I have worked with them before and I, um, I enjoy collaborating with them, but you should never feel like you're relying on their knowledge or skills to be able to do your own job. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's really cool. I I really didn't know that. Um, okay. So speaking of kind of like differing titles you always wanted to have your a doctorate of some sort way back Mm -hmm. when 
Now, in retrospect, now that you have your DNP, do you think it truly matters, uh, MSN versus DNP prepared CRNA? Well, it's mandatory in our career field. So it does right. matter for I don't us. Even think um, they have it's transition. There are yeah. a few left. There are There's a few, few left. There's a few, but mm. they're in the process of transitioning. The problem is if you get accepted into an MSN program now, you really right. have to be graduated and have passed boards before 2025. Because right. at that point, if you haven't, you're not going to be allowed to take boards and your education will be useless to you. So it's a risky oh, game to gosh. play um, to be trying to apply to master's programs at this point. Um, not only to, I mean, not to mention the fact that the future of everyone graduating around you is all going to be doctoral. I mean, I went to school in 2016. I started and I have a doctorate. So it's, it's kind of like you're choosing to go behind the curve, um, for the future of the, of the career. And so I didn't want to do that. It was transitioning back when I was applying and I knew that I didn't want to start my practice at the beginning of my career, already knowing that everyone else going forward is going to have a higher degree than me. And the yeah. expectation would be that they had a higher degree. So I, um, I wanted the doctoral. Oh, but so. if I think that it makes a true difference in the sense of like provider wise, I have met tons of master's prepared CRNAs who are brilliant, very capable. Um, you know, I don't think that it clinically makes a huge difference. A lot of things that the doctoral program for CRNAs pro, uh, focus on is it gives you more leadership skills It gives you more um, knowledge in research and evidence-based practice. It Mm -hmm. kind of, it's more of an outside the OR type role where you're getting more well-rounded as an expert in the anesthesia field and not necessarily just hands-on administering anesthesia. And that's the future of CRNAs. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think that's a future of a lot of, a lot of degrees are just hot. Um, requiring higher education. I I would even think it's safe to say like ASN versus BSN where like ASN, yep. yeah, you can be just as good of a nurse, but you still have those extra classes for a BSN that, you know, like leadership and the evidence-based practice, stuff like that, that they may not require. And can you learn those things outside of school? Absolutely. Um, but like you said, it's, it's a, it's another degree and if you can, if you have the means to do it, you absolutely should. Totally. Yeah. And I think NPs, I mean, you guys are doing the NP route. And I, I know there are, I, one of my friends is, has her doctorate, uh, DNP as an NP. And yeah. uh, a lot of programs as NPs, it's not mandatory yet for NPs, but I would not be surprised if before it's, long it's it coming. became mandatory. Oh, yeah. yeah. It is. And I think in just like you were making that point earlier, Hannah, that ASN to BSN transition, it's I think it's going to be across the board with everything. But in in every aspect, like if you're going to go and do like post certs and and something like critical care or psych or obstetrics, um, then why I mean, why not do that or go back and like re-enroll for that? Because you're just I mean, you're lifelong learners anyways. So why not have the degree to show it as well? That's my thought Definitely. process anyways. Oh, I agree completely. I, but I also love school. So there's that. <laughs> Most people <laughs> who go on to grad school, even if they don't, you know, I, I quote Admit unquote it. love it. They uh, they there is an element to them that enjoys education and learning or else they would not have gone on back to school for grad school. Cause it's unnecessary. Yeah. You don't have to, you could have a yep. completely fruitful and happy and fulfilled career with your bachelor's degree and make good income and be, you know, ha- have a decent life. So if you choose mm-hmm. to go back to school from there, there's an element to you that likes learning and academics. 
Oh, for sure. I'm the type of person though that I'll literally like take a class just for just because. Like I did that. <laughs> I did that like last semester, some some grad nursing classes that I will never need, but just because I was like, eh, I want to go back to school. I'll See, say like- CRNA school broke me. I used to be like that, and then it broke me, and I'm still recovering. I'm about two years <laughs> out now, and so I'm just <laughs> now getting to the point where I don't, I don't like have hives if I think about it again. But uh, <laughs> but eventually, CRNA broke us a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, I'm like that right now. I mean, like Hannah knows. I was texting her. I'm like, I I don't know about this semester. I'm like, I don't know if I really want to do this. Like, why am I doing this? Like, why? And then. I think mm-hmm. that you just get to that point, and maybe it's just because you haven't started classes yet, Hannah, but I think you'll look back and be like, why? But, you know, afterwards, in hindsight, you are happy that you did it, so that's why I'm still chugging along. Right. Maybe. <laughs> probably. It's hindsight fine. Hindsight 2020, right? Just re- just remind me to go back and listen to this episode when I'm complaining in a couple of years about school. Exactly. I'm just going to send right. it to you. <laughs> <laughs> so passive-aggressive. We love it. <laughs> Uh, Speaking of 2020, how has uh, COVID affected um, or how have you seen the effects of COVID um, on the profession of CRNAs? So uh, when COVID initially hit last March in America and was, you know, hit in a large way, elective surgeries got uh, postponed or canceled pretty much until we got it under control better because we weren't going to take people into the hospital who weren't sick and put right, them in an environment the where they could be exposed to COVID and, or even bring COVID in unknowingly to us and, and mm-hmm. infect more people. So we had to cancel elective surgeries. And when you cancel elective surgeries, that is a good portion of what we do as anesthesia providers is provide anesthesia for surgery. You know, outside of that, we have some other consult roles. And of course, OBGYN, when you do epidurals and C-sections and things like that, And you still had emergency cases and urgent cases that you had to do. Like if say you had a cancer based case where you can't wait three months or the cancer could progress much worse. And so that wouldn't make sense. So you would do it now. Um, There were certain cases, a broken leg, you can't wait on. There are certain things. So we would do those, but essentially our staffing and, and our, what we needed to, you know, staff for dropped dramatically, maybe 50, 60%. Some practices across the nation furloughed a lot of their anesthesia providers for a month or two and just said, you know, hey, we're not going to need you at all. That wasn't the norm, though. I would say that that was some of the the really worst practices and they've been kind of blacklisted now. Everyone, CRNAs kind of have some forums where we like 25, 30,000 of us are all connected and we, we make sure that everyone knows what those practices are if they did that kind of thing. But I um, love that. That's, that's like great. That, I mean, that just goes to show that like, okay, that's what nurses need to do, honestly, I mm-hmm. mean, across the board. But anyway, sorry to interrupt. You have to, as clinicians and healthcare professions, you have to stick together because I'm sure you know healthcare is a business in America and yes. we are uh, we are a major commodity and the only way that the business happens is through us. So the business people who make these decisions to save money by eliminating staff, which is a major percentage of their overhead. Um, If they do people dirty, then those same clinicians that they will need to provide their anesthetics in the future will remember that and they will regret that decision. So and then the other groups that didn't do that were rewarded with uh, loyal people who stayed and then probably gained extra staff who they needed for the future. But um, 
Anyway, so I happened to be working at two facilities at that time. I was working per oh, diem nice. at one and uh, and then working at another. So I did not really lose any of my time because whatever one place didn't need me for because they were you know mm-hmm. short on need, the other place did me, need me. And uh, it was a larger facility that had lots of you know, traumas and lots of different types of cases that had to be done. So I pretty much worked 40 plus hours a week all the way through nice. in the OR mostly. And, um, and yeah, I've just continued on here, here in the last probably six weeks, it's, what is it today is January 29th. And I would say probably like mid December, we had to recancel elective cases again. We started them back up way back in June. And then we recanceled elective cases as a whole here in the area in mid December. And a lot of us, of course, we still ran the urgent cases, but a lot of us would come help out on the ICU or the critical care yeah, units with doing intubation. Um, yeah. So like, of course, with COVID, there's lots of intubations that need to be done. There's lots of arterial lines. All of these patients need arterial lines. There's lots of ABGs to be drawn and monitored. There's really advanced vent settings. Now that with all of these extra vents that everyone's on, you you need people who can manage these ventilators and keep a check yeah. on these things because their respiratory status changes so quickly. You need to be making sure that pe- the patients are being prone and supine and that they're not losing their airways, which happens sometimes through all this rotations mm-hmm. of patients, yep. these really high peak pressures that these patients are on for such a long period of time. So, um, so you just need a lot more of like airway experts and, and respiratory people around the unit at that time. So we offered to go help. And so about one day a week, I would go to the ICU and, and I would help out for a little bit and make sure everything was okay. And so that's kind of the only way that it's really affected me, of course, in the general sense of wearing a lot of extra PPE now, cappers and pappers and N95s all the time and, you know, constantly being nervous about anyone talking to you or being around you and that general sense of anxiety that's affected everyone. Yeah, I think it it, it has affected everyone in crazy amounts of ways, but I'm so I'm super glad that you were able to kind of jump in with with the ICU because let me tell you we've needed it uh, and the people who have jumped in have just been so it's been just such a blessing for us because we've been drowning o- over here so thank you for remembering us on the other side. It's funny <laughs> because in some of the members of our group, some of my colleagues, they have a critical care fellowship. So since the beginning of COVID, oh. they've been helping out a lot in the ICU as intensivists. And I've, I've really stayed out of the ICU. I haven't, I hadn't actually seen a COVID patient in the first nine months of COVID. Like I never, well, maybe I saw one who came, who had a surgery that had to come down because if you had COVID, yeah. I mean, if you had COVID, we didn't do your case pretty much in the the first, you know, nine months. Unless not only that, they were thinking that when like, if you try to do anything laparoscopic, it aerosolized. So they were afraid that with that aerosolization in the OR, um, they were thinking no, no more laparoscopic, you know, gallbladders, you know, 15, 30 minute cases. They were like, you need to open them. So I do know like at the beginning of last year, when this was all kind of like happening, that was like a major concern that a lot of the surgeons had. I mean, just from a, from a standpoint of doing anything in the abdomen, not to mention like Bronx or anything GI wise oh, yes. for endo. 
Yeah, very, very high risk. I remember when I did endo and I was doing endoscopies, which like the upper yeah. scopes that go into the mouth to the stomach, those were considered extremely high risk and were high, yeah. are high risk for COVID positive patients. Even if we even if I tested you before, which we tested everybody before we did their procedure and they came back negative, I would still wear an N95 and a face shield for things like endoscopy, oh, yeah. um, for oh, intubation. Yeah. Um, intubation is another major aerosolizing um, skill that you perform. So in the beginning, and, and even now still to some extent, I will opt to do a spinal anesthetic on a patient if I can, instead of a general anesthetic, if they're COVID positive or if they're yep. under investigation, if I have concerns that they may have COVID, I will just do a spinal anesthetic, which is similar to an epidural where you go in, it's usually a one-shot push of some anesthetic meds into the subarachnoid space. And then their you know, abdomen or to up towards like the xiphoid process down to their toes, it goes numb and it can last you know a few hours. And they can perform surgery on the abdomen or even down into the legs. And that way they don't, you don't have to instrument the airway. The patient breathes on their own. You give them a little mm -hmm. oxygen mask and they can, you know, breathe on their own and maintain their own airway. And it's a lot safer with COVID patients. So in that sense, we have kind of modified some of our techniques and what we would do uh, to decrease our risk. Interesting. I, I didn't know that that's something that you guys were doing. That's, that's really cool though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, there are so many different aspects to anesthesia that aren't, you know, strictly involved with the hospital setting. And I'm sure Jason, you can contest to that. So. I will. I'll say there are some people who, especially like moms who do like dentistry yeah. anesthesia, like they'll yep. do like nitrous and some basic, yeah, or plastics. They'll do it like Monday through Friday, nine to five, mm -hmm. nine to four, whatever office hours, holidays and weekends and nights off. And they yep. make great money and they can, they can balance their lifestyle a little better in that method. Um, yeah. but I mean, in general, especially when you're first getting started, getting your feet wet, oh, yeah. in you need, you need that experience. Yeah. You've got to get it. You've got to get it. And my personality, I know that I wouldn't be able to turn it off. I wouldn't be able to say, no, I'm going to step back and go work and, you know, do like plastics or, you know, yeah, we're both all in kind of people. Exactly. All in. Yeah. I would And we have like, call and we, you know, yep, I, yeah, I last night tough. I was up from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. just covering the mm. OR emergency cases and all this other stuff. And then, you know, you'll switch back to day coverage where you're covering normal cases during the day. And, you know, there's just a lot of sometimes people yeah. work post call where like you worked all night and you might have slept two or three hours in the call room and then you might Do take it the next day which yeah, I don't do that, uh, but sometimes they'll ask you to do that. And I always refuse, but, um, but yeah, so, I mean, the lifestyle, the CRNA lifestyle is definitely more intense than, and physically more intense than mm -hmm. uh, NP, NP a lot easier to manage, uh, your lifestyle around. Right. Yeah. And that, and I always say like, you know, if I was, if I was a man, like I, I would do it because then, I mean, the other, the other concern that I have too, and then I've spoke to other CRNAs is like, you know, being pregnant and with some of the gases that you guys deal with and, you know, some of the medications and some of the cases and especially with COVID, you know, and we don't know how long it's going to hang around. And once we do aerosolize it, you're in your, you know I mean, your chances of getting just increase exponentially and not to mention the other things that are lurking in someone's lungs. So it that, you know, that all puts your fetus at risk too. So those are all the things that like went into my process and decision making. 
Yeah, so. totally. There's definitely valid concerns, and uh, and you know, people make it work. There are definitely moms, and there oh, yeah. there are people. There was two of my classmates who got pregnant in the program and had a baby in the program and made it work. Yeah. but it was hard. It was very I think, hard. Yeah, if you want price. anything bad enough, you could do it. It's oh, just, of yeah. course, of I don't course. want it bad enough to <laughs> to do <Right>. it. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. It's like, do is that truly worth it to you? And and actually, is it something you want to sacrifice all that much for, or would right. you be happier just doing something else and i like eight other fields besides crna so am i gonna get you know what i mean go down the one just because i don't know i think my heart will always be there for it um and you never know like later on in life after kids or something go back to school you just you just never know but right now i know it's not for me right now (laughs) right that's good to know (laughs) what you know (laughs) don't know (laughs) all right kristen do you want to do the three r's um, actually, I want you to do it because it's your favorite part. All right. And now it's time for Kristen's favorite part of the show. The three R's. Jason, this is a part of the show. If you haven't haven't listened to us before, which I don't know what you're missing out on if you haven't. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. You've listened to us. I've heard um, it. Yeah. <laughs> this is a part of the show where we do the three R's of your career. So regrets, redos, and rewards. Okay. My first regret or my big regret. Let's see. Um, You know, this one is a tricky one because I'm definitely one of those people who believes in where you are. Is it's, it's no regrets with an incorrect spell tattoo. Yes. Yes. Um, But yeah, I mean, a lot of who you are now today is made up from those regrets or those mistakes that you thought. And, And so it helps build you as a person. But if I had to say, there was one thing that I wished I had not done. Oh, I um, I wished I had not taken a travel contract at an academic hospital that I will not say the name of, but it was <laughs> um, it was outside of the ICU. It was working in an um, kind of like an it's not interventional radiology. It was more it was almost like conscious sedation for oh. um, CT guided biopsies and stuff. Interesting. And, and I took the job because I was going to go to CRNA school and it sounded like it was kind of similar, like, almost like nursing IV sedation. And, um, and I thought, okay, this will be something that'll be good for, you know, preparing me. I took the contract. There was a lot of turmoil there. I didn't realize when I took the travel contract that the reason they needed extra help so rapidly is because their nurse manager had been fired and the new nurse manager was someone who was just interim that they had pulled from another department. And there was a lot of transition in the workplace. And then there was this charge nurse there who wasn't actually a true charge nurse. She just worked there for like five or six years and thought she was a charge nurse. So she just behaved (laughs) that way. And, uh, and so she just had a lot of, just kind of threw her weight around and, and half the, half of the staff was travelers because of all this turnover and turmoil. A lot of their regular staff quit and uh and so she she kind of uh took out her wrath and her i guess her personal angst and stuff out on the travel staff that came in and it was it was just a really bad it was a really bad contract the worst i'd ever had other contracts i took were so positive i'd had such great experiences met great people made friends with management you know almost everywhere else i had ever gone they asked me to stay on full-time as staff and just really was upset to see me leave usually threw me like a going away party with a cake and stuff and then i come here and there's like this super negative vibe terrible environment and um, Mm. and i actually left that contract a month early 
Oh, wow. It was that bad. It was quite stressful. It well, actually they had, it was coming to the point of, if I don't leave, they're going to try and find a way to fire me and like make it look bad on my record. So I said, I'm just gonna, I'm going to bow out of this quickly before it goes any, anywhere else. And so that would be a regret. I would say if I could switch, if I could go back and tell myself in 2014, like, Hey, just don't take that contract, take this other one. And I would have taken the other one instead. Um, Next is redos. If you forgot. He'd redo that travel assignment. <laughs> I would redo. Yeah, shoot. Uh, shoot. That is a hard one. We can circle back. Rewards. Okay, rewards. What's what's been most rewarding for me? Yeah. Yes. Well, uh, and don't say the money. Career. Don't say the money. No. Well, I was going to say obviously graduating CRNA school is most rewarding. Finishing my doctorate, that whole ceremony. Aww. That was um, amazingly rewarding. Passing boards. Actually, I would say passing boards as a CRNA was <laughs> the most rewarding moment where I literally thought I had a stroke. Like the, when they print out a uh, they print out a little slip at the end of your exam. And it's similar to how when you take NCLEX and you take it in those centers. I forget the name of those centers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, They're like testing those centers. centers. Testing centers that everyone remembers where it's really intense corporate thing. You can't have anything in your pockets, no chewing gum, all this stuff. And, um, and I remember we got done. And when you're done with your CRNA thing, they print out a preliminary piece of paper that the secretary hands you before you walk out the door that says pass or fail. Oh, and nice. Yeah. And so for your NCLEX, it doesn't say that you have to wait. But for CRNA school, you don't. And uh, they, she printed it out and handed it to me. And I was sure I failed. I was, I was a hundred percent sure I failed uh, because the test was so grueling. I thought there's no way I passed this. I, you know, I'm an idiot. There's no way I, I failed that test. And, uh, and I looked at the word pass on it. And that's when I thought I had a stroke because <laughs> like an out of body experience. Oh I thought gosh. surely I'm reading the words incorrectly on this piece of paper. And, and Ma'am, then I can started, you read this to me, please? Yes. I, and the woman was. The woman was concerned for me. I could tell. She was like, are you okay? Because <laughs> I, I was definitely, I think my, my mouth was hanging open and I've started to cry. And I'm not, I'm not the kind of person who ever cries in public or really cries much at all. But uh, in that moment, it was just such a giant release of anxiety and fears and just mounting um, pressure that had been mounting for a few years at that point at getting you prepared for it that it was just like an out-of-body experience. So I would say that would be the most um, rewarding for me. Oh, I love that. Did you think of a redo? If I could redo anything, there's some relationships I'd redo. But, uh, <laughs> we'll leave it at that. We'll leave no, it at that. Go into that one. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, and I also don't really want to know. <laughs> no, it's better to leave it ambiguous on that one. Okay, we love that. We love that. <laughs> so, everyone, thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Jason, so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. If you want to find out more about CRNA school, preparing yourself for CRNA school, or you just want to see more about a life as a CRNA, Check out Jason at Bolt CRNA um, on Instagram, and he's also on YouTube and his Facebook group. Yes, thank Do you we- guys so much for having me on. It's really been great talking to you guys, and and I'd love to come back on and have another conversation about anything you guys want to talk about because you guys are such great conversationalists. Wink, wink. Aww, I think we might you. do that. Thank you. There you go.
Hey guys, thanks for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget, every Friday we drop a new episode. And if you if you want to support us, make sure to give, leave us a five-star review and subscribe to our podcast. We're available on all major podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. If you could also make sure that you're following us for our updates on our socials at Nurses No Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Insta.